you're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from Maine. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Why, good morning, everybody. This is a froggy voice, uh, Down East Mike, uh, coming to you live from Down East, Maine. Today is Friday, February 9th, 2024. This is Down East Mike, episode 115, news and commentary for Friday. And you know, some of this is whimsy, some of it's true, and the interpretation of it all is entirely up to you. This podcast contains absolutely no mean words, just wholesome goodness from down east Maine. Today we have, uh, today's episode is quite good. We have a, from Sears Island, build a desulfurization plant. That's from 1971. We have Apollo 14 on the way down. And that's from 1971. Uh, story about immigrants to Maine. By the thousands in 1972. We like that story. And then we have uh, a main honorary mammal of the moment, a deep dive there. And that is going to be a good one, too. You'll want to stick around for that. We also have the slideshow going on. If you don't want to look at me, I appreciate that and down below there. That's Acadia National Park you're looking at. We should start off probably being Friday. We should start off with uh, uh, an illness of the instant. And this could happen to you, could happen to me, but, uh, well, maybe it did. But it's called a password resetter's rage. And that is when the person who has to reset their password settles into a deep, dark rage because they're unable to change their password. They're unable to reset it. Password resetters rage. Uh, symptoms are you can't get into your system and your files are locked and you've got customers at the door you're trying to deal with and you've tried every combination and it's not working. You call IT and you know they're offshore, of course. And they try to help you, but you can't understand them, and they can't understand you. And that little bit of a rage, it just started out, just a teensy bit of password rage, soon becomes an overwhelming, all-consuming moment in your life where you see nothing but red, and there's nothing that can be done except maybe gently close the laptop lid and just walk away. Password Resetters Rage. That is your illness of the instant here on the Down East Mike podcast. Your day is better for that experience. Let's roll it back to 1971, February 9th. Uh, Bangor, Maine. That was the center of the universe at the time. It's also one of the few newspapers that's online that we can troll from. The oil firm is filing a plan. And uh, <clears throat> this is... Uh, his name was David Skoll, kind of blurry, and he was a main, I love the name, huh? Main Clean Fuels, Inc. Monday evening, he reviewed three years of work to compile a four-inch thick plea. I wish we had our ruler, because four-inch thick plea. Uh, going to the state's Environmental Improvement Commission for permission to construct, get this, a $150 million oil desulfurization plant on Sears Island in Searsport. Poor Sears Island 
It's like a pin. They, and it's like a, it's like a balloon they want to pop there. Uh, in an interview in Bangor, Skoll said, this is the most complete compilation of all phases of pollution control you can achieve. Yes. According to the New York attorney, who serves as the head of Maine Clean Fuels, he came up from New York just to put this desulfurization plant there. Anyway, he says this is going to clean up the fuel. Uh, his proposal is to bring in 250,000 barrels of crude oil per day into the facility on the 1,000-mile island in Penobscot Bay. Of this, 150,000 barrels could be brought from foreign sources aboard 200,000-ton um, tankers arriving at Sears Island every 10 days. You could sit on the dock and watch them come in. That'd be fun. The remaining 50,000 barrels would be brought to Maine aboard 70,000-ton tankers from the domestic suppliers in the Gulf States area. Anyway, that was in uh, 1971. They, they wanted to develop that thing. It goes on in some detail there. Um, and then, you know, kind of coincidentally, ongoing story today, uh, you can go to friendsofseersisland.org, friendsofseersisland.org, and they talk about Sears Island being under a threat of development today. The main Department of Transportation is considering developing Sears Island, and it's listed as one of the largest undeveloped islands on the eastern seaboard of the U.S., and so the main DOT wants to build it into a hub for building and launching floating offshore wind turbines. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, the only thing I could see good there would be, uh, like if you could walk out to the turbines and have a picnic or go fishing or something, but they wanted to uh, build and launch them from there. They go on in, in quite a bit of notes. You could go to that site and, and read about it, but uh, just some notes on Sears Island. It's a 941-acre island. Uh, it's got a rich legacy of thousands of years of stewardship by the region's indigenous peoples. And I was there one afternoon some summers ago, and there were a couple young fellows here, and I think they were from up uh, Penobscot Way, and uh, they were saying that their their people own that island still, and they spoke quite passionately about it, and I almost felt bad like I was trespassing. Uh, so a lot of a lot of emotion over that place, but anyway, they they plan to build a manufacturing facility there. That's being contested. They're saying if the wind port's built on Sears Island, uh, forty five acres of the land will be cleared and graded. Uh, 17 acres of the marine habitat would be filled in with harvested soil. They'd destroy local environment for um, all manner of animals there. And oh, uh, to assemble the wind turbines, a crane that could reach nearly 800 feet tall would be permanently installed on the western shore of the island, towering over any recreational activity or educational programs currently taking place on the other side. It would be lighted all day and night in a security fence would surround the whole operation so visitors would no longer be able to walk around the island. Uh, okay, so that's enough about that. Let's go on to our story about Apollo 14. The sea was looking nearly perfect for a splashdown. 
Apollo 14's astronauts began stowing away all their loose gear Monday while streaking towards a splashdown in the South Pacific where weather was reported just about perfect for the recovery Tuesday afternoon. This is 19, this day in 1971. Ground controllers began uh, reading up a gear storage checklist about 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time explaining that the few steps, last steps remaining will be informational and then we'll get into the real fine stuff. That's like when they're putting away the pens and uh, the little space tubes, the little space food. It was like dried milk and peanut butter, I think, they had to eat up there. And that was in 1971. It was forecast to, to come down. Uh, while rocketing home Monday, the astronauts spent about an hour checking on mysterious light flashes which they and other astronauts have reported seeing inside their eyeballs. That's a little disturbing. Scientists believe the flashes are caused by cosmic rays piercing the eyeball. They are not concerned about the phenomenon on such relatively short space trips, but want to learn more about them before committing men to longer flights. I'd be a little bit worried about space flashes if I was up there, something in my in my eyes. Well, it's not all serious here on the Down East Mike podcast. We also have a story from Rockland, Maine in 1971. $220 taken in a break-in at the lounge, the, the Red Jacket Lounge. It was an undetermined quantity of merchandise and $220 missing from the Glen Rob Market and breaks here over the weekend. The Rockland police said both breaks occurred on Friday night, beer and cigarettes, as well as packaged dinners, were reported missing from the Glen Rhea Market, and they had the 220 taken from the Red Jacket Lounge. So, somebody was going to party that weekend. All right, we have from uh, this is from out of a story out of New York. Boy, it fits with Maine. It's all the ways to tell him how much you love him. With Valentine's Day approaching, you may be looking for ways how to tell him you love him. There are some suggestions from the current issue of Ladies Home Journal, 1971. So we got to take this within context. Context. So some of the ways to tell him you love him. You take out the garbage tonight. You serve him a banana split and tell him he can go back on his diet tomorrow. You mention his name in your sleep. Tell him his mother was right. Uh, tell him you thought you saw him at the shopping center, but it turned out to be Gregory Peck. And ask him how to spell a word you know he can spell already. Tell him your daughter's third grade teacher thinks he's cute. Fill up the car with gas from your household money. Shovel the walk. Write, I love you on a pink, uh, on a slip of pink paper and tape it on the shaven mirror. My goodness. Those were the ways to tell him how much you love him in 1971 from Ladies Home Journal. Probably wouldn't fly so well today. All right, we're going back further again. 1872, Immigration Story, Commissioner Thomas. This is 1872 in Maine. Commissioner Thomas addressed the Joint Special Committee on Immigration this evening at Representatives Hall, which before has been twice packed today on exciting topics. Mr. Thomas gave a sketch of New Sweden, Maine, and the town has 1,000 immigrants, 
$40,000 in cash, several miles of turnpike, several thousand acres of cleared land, and success is secured there. 500 of the Swedes never needed or received help. The colony isn't homesick. Thousands more will come. They learn English rapidly. In 1871, they raised 3,000 bushels of grain and 5,000 bushels of potatoes. This is New Sweden, up, up the county way. $12,000 appropriation from the state will be needed to carry those over, not yet self-supporting through to harvest. And after that, these people will not need another dollar. That was 1871, New Sweden, Maine immigrant. Uh, out of Knox County, Thomaston, the Free Press, remember that? The Free Press, press says it's in the possession of Warden Rice of the state prison, Mr. Rice, a high-backed wooden chair with cane bottom, which bears the date 1641, the year in which it was made. Then the chair, which was a present to Mrs. Rice, is not far from the present style of cabinet work, having a straight high back and arms and forms not unlike those wrought in walnut and rosewood in the fashionably furnished parlors of the present time. So a chair from 1641 that they had at the state prison. Also of some news, uh, John Robinson, who was last week injured by a branch of a fallen tree striking him, did die Thursday in Thomaston. He was the son of Isaac Robbins of Thomaston, leaves a widow and seven children. The Norway advertiser says John Farnham of Rumford had a buffalo robe stolen out of his sleigh one evening last week. This is the kind of crime doesn't happen today. The horse and sleigh were left in the shed of Henry Small while Mrs. F. was attending a prayer meeting. Mr. Pratt, car uh, carriage maker, had $40 stolen from him a short time ago as well. Here's a little tidbit. There were 19 cases of smallpox and seven deaths in New York on Thursday. Those diseases were an issue then. There was a masquerade. And you can't imagine this going on today. There was an immense crowd at the masquerade ball in Arian on Thursday night. Last year, it was postponed on account of the war in France. The festivities kept up until daylight. That's amazing. Okay, here we get to our feature story. This is our, 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 um, our mammal of the, of the moment, honorary mammal of the moment. So this is all about, uh, it actually is out of New Hampshire, and this is a fellow named Corbin. I think he was a railroad magnet, uh, magnate. Uh, Mr. Corbin's Mountain Park his 26,000-acre tract in New Hampshire. The purchase of Austin Corbin's Park at Newport, New Hampshire, the greatest private shooting park in America, began several years ago. It was owned by farmers in blocks of from 100 to 600 acres. Much of the land was exceedingly rocky and rough, and while well adapted, and Mr. Corbin's purpose was discouragingly unproductive to the farmers who strove to cultivate it. So basically it wasn't very good farmland, but he wanted it for his game farm. A fair and uniform price was paid for it, however, and at a distance from two miles from Newport to the left of the highway is the old homestead of Mr. Corbin, the spacious and handsome buildings of which and its surrounding cultivated tracts 
can be seen by the traveler as he proceeds northward to the park. In other words, you can see it from the road. Uh, belonging to this farm east of the old Croydon Turnpike and on the right of the road leading to the park are 800 acres of land used for sheep farming. It includes the old historical and picturesque Colt Mountain, the lookout point for the village excursionists, and from its top are obtainable some of the grandest views to be found in the state of New Hampshire. The pastures are equal to the feeding of fully a thousand sheep. Midway between the old farm and the track is the home of Mr. George Eagle, treasurer of the Blue Mountain Park Association, and he's also Mr. Corbin's son-in-law. Okay, this is from 1890, this story. So we're getting the, the setup of the park here in Newport, uh, New Hampshire. When the purchase of the park lands was completed, the task of fencing it was then begun, and in December 1890, the work of constructing a wire mesh fence eight and a half feet high and 30 miles in length was completed. At each post a year later was planted a young white pine or willow tree, and these are all growing at present, and as the planting is to continue from year to year, it will not be many years before the entire preserve is surrounded by a living fence. This is just amazing. 30 miles of fence. Newport, New Hampshire, 1890. At convenient distances are the different entrances to the park. Does this sound like Jurassic Park? And at each gate has been constructed a comfortable lodge for occupancy by the gatekeepers. It is the duty of these keepers to patrol their respective divisions of the park and see that the fence is kept in perfect repair. The reserve and surface character is admirably adapted to the purpose. The Croydon Mountains begin at the southern end of the park and extend northeastward to the extreme northern limit of the park. And upon each side of the mountain slopes off into the wooded lowlands and rolling plains thickly covered with a sheltering growth of timber. I've been in that area and it, it is rugged and it is a rugged area. Water is abundant in 40 or more miles of streams teem with trout and grayling while the lakes at the southern end of the range are well stocked with pickerel and bass. The only road across the mountain is the Notch Road which crosses through a magnificent gorge from the Croydon Four Corners to the West Pass Gate in Cornish Flat. And now bearing in mind this brief description of the park and its surroundings, the reader may follow the writer through the more interesting portions of the park, those which game are most in the habit of frequenting. Uh, so a mile and a half up the Granham Road, we pass the, ha the Haven Gate, he goes on, and he's talking about his horse riding. Finally, our horse's hoofs uh, clattered over a wooden bridge. And a moment after, arriving at the summit of the little hill, we came upon a herd of 23 buffalo, big, fat, fine-conditioned fellows. And as we appeared, they looked up, took in the number of the intruding party with an alarming bellow for the benefit of the rest of the herd, jumped the stone fence that bordered the road, and they ran up the hill with tails erect. There was considerable commotion when the old bill bulls charged up the bank, but after circling around for a moment or two and sharply eyeing us as we approached, they seemed to regain confidence and their fear vanished, and we then counted 16 cows and 7 bulls in the herd. 
Mr. Corbin's herd is the second largest buffalo herd in the country, the largest being owned by the Buffalo Jones, a ranch man in Kansas, numbering about 40 head. The animals seem to thrive wonderfully well in New Hampshire. Foxes were the detestation of Mr. Corbin and his friends. He went to great expense to stock the park with quail, partridge, and even turkey, and he has kept men on the place whose principal duty is to hunt old Raynard. Uh, notwithstanding his efforts, however, the foxes have gone on increasing in number and have thrived and grown fat on young quail and partridge. For the turkeys, they made life miserable so long as they remained in the park, even walking off with and devouring a 24-pound cock turkey that probably weighed twice as much as did the fox that had him by the neck. While in boot, we came suddenly upon a fine young bull moose. He took a, a quick look at us and gave vent to a frightful snort and disappeared into the bushes. Further on, we came upon a young stag and his horns protruding but two or three inches above his shapely head. He stood still as a statue for an instant, gazed at us with his big astonished eyes, and then with two or three graceful bounds, he was out of sight. At Central Station, where a group of farm buildings, I saw a fine set of pulled, uh, I can't quite read that, pulled Angus cattle, uh, the pulled Angus cattle, the result of Mr. Corbin's importation of one bull and twelve from Scotland a year or more ago. It was the intention to cross his pulled Angus stock with the buffalo, the result being a hardy animal carrying a great deal of beef and the finest shaggiest, silkiest robes of its size in the world. Sort of like the one that was stolen from the wagon there. Then here's where, here's where we get to the real, the real animal, the mammal of the moment. Mr. Corbin brought from the Black Forest in Germany some years ago four males and ten females, the genuine wild boar, and turned them loose in his forest. They are extremely wild more so than any other animal in the park. And while the traveler throughout the park can always see uh, more, more or less of the deer or elk with an occasional moose, he rarely ever sees a boar. They scent the approach of a person from a long distance and are pretty sure to be out of the way. It's estimated that there are now from 200 to 250 wild boar in the park. Mr. Corbin since establishing the park, employed hunters all over the country to secure wild animals for his enclosure, and now contains the largest number of wild birds and beasts of any preserve in the country. That was from the Boston Transcript, 1890. So we roll it ahead a little bit. We look at 1902. The park is still in existence in the Jurassic Park of, of Newport, New Hampshire. President Roosevelt went hunting Friday evening in Austin Corbin's Park, a big game preserve near Newport, New Hampshire, and he shot and killed a wild boar that weighed 700 pounds. That was September 3rd, 1902. And then we go further ahead to 1955. This is a story out of a Quebec newspaper. It was a Quebec city that information started to accrue. Ray Rahner of Procter & Gamble and Lason Fish uh, Game Club. He was down to the convention. He'd read a piece on New Hampshire pigs in the current issue of Outdoor Life. 
He called a friend in New Hampshire Conservation Department and got most of the data on the game preserve. He was told that during the 1937 hurricane, some of the pigs escaped and that 25 or 30 are taken off the surrounding territory each year. The big ones, he told them, can subsist through the winters in the northern part of the state, but the young cannot. The department sometimes feeds them from plains in the winter, that is the overflow pigs. They have wandered as far as Pennsylvania, and if they ever get hardy enough to stand our winters, why would not wild pigs come up to Quebec? One wonders if they've ever seen anything as tough as our poachers. And another story, this is from 1914, going back a little bit. New Hampshire man finds beast in a pen with several hogs out of Keene, New Hampshire. Leon Holt of East Sullivan brought into the city a wild boar which he had shot. The boar was noticed in a pen with several hogs. Holt and several others took up the chase and killed it. It's thought to be the only wild boar ever killed in Cheshire County. Now, back in the day, back in the 1990s, uh, I do remember someone shooting a, a boar, claiming to have shot a boar from a tree stand uh, in Cheshire County. And then a friend of a friend who was a hunter told me that he knew the man that shot the boar, and that man was fibbing. Well, I can think of it. probably wasn't a, a, a boar there. You know, here's a story from uh, 2006. We'll wrap it up. We'll get to the end here. Uh, this is from 2006 in that same area as Claremont, New Hampshire. Wild boars have ravaged New Hampshire cornfields this summer, and at least one farmer complains state law limits his ability to fight back. Danielle Hempston, who owns and works the 88-acre Elton's Uphill Farm Marketplace with her husband James, said the boars are still damaging their cornfield at night, and others have had the same problem. She estimates field damage at more than $25,000 from the animals, which can weigh up to 250 pounds. These boars are thought to be the descendants of wild boars that escaped from the Blue Mountain Forest Association, a private hunting preserve in uh, Sullivan County. The fence uh, reserve was set up in the, uh, in the 1800s to provide hunting for wealthy sports sportsmen. Buffalo, deer, moose, elk, bighorn, sheep, caribou, and wild boar were imported from the Black Forest of Germany to stock the preserve. Many boars, however, escaped during a 1938 hurricane that destroyed sections of the 10-foot-high fence. Seemed like a great idea at the time. Uh, James Amsden, the farmer, and some friends tried stalking the animals earlier this summer, but the state fish and game department halted the hunt uh, citing safety factors and game laws that prohibited night hunting. It's an extreme safety problem to have a gang of men with rifles out hunting at night, said Howard Noel, the head of the state fishing game department's, wild, department's wildlife division. You don't know what's behind the boar. It could be a barn, a house, a highway. Those rifle bullets go a long way. Uh, anyway, that was uh, in 2006. They were still having problems from those boars. It's, it's, you can find out more more stories and go look up a picture of, of those wild boars if you want to. I think that's our podcast for today. And until next time, this is Downey Spike wishing you and your loved ones a day that is full of grace, love, and kindness. We'll see you.
Everybody's getting seasick. Everybody gets seasick. Everybody gets seasick now. Seasick. Sick. 